Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things in credit markets that caught our eye that we believe you should know about. And let me say that I'm relieved to see that ESG has taken care of the European Super League, so I don't have to weigh in on that. All right, let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, economic slack. Remember the misery index? The addition of the unemployment rate and the inflation rate? That was big back in the 80s. We thought we would update that idea, making it relevant to something bondholders care deeply about, the prospects of an overheating economy. We'll measure economic slack. It should make you comfortable that inflation fears are overblown. Two, big bank earnings our economic canaries in the coal mine. We'll pull a few pearls of wisdom out of Q1 earnings calls that provide some insight into what it, what's ahead economically. And three, consumer confidence. The latest report out of the University of Michigan reminds us that not all is well with the almighty U.S. consumer. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. What a difference a year makes. Instead of contemplating Great Depression II, the economic risks have swung all the way around to risks to the upside, namely inflation. An economy at risk from policy overreaction, but not in the way we become accustomed. Too much fiscal stimulus, too much monetary accommodation. Sure, we've kept up with all the anecdotal evidence of commodities price spikes, labor shortages, and asset bubbles. But we keep getting stuck on a couple of things. One, the broader labor market and two, industrial capacity. In both of these, we find slack. Now let's start with the labor market. Forget the unemployment rate, we're more interested in the economic output. And for that, you need to pay more attention to the U6, the underemployment rate. Here we pick up not only the unemployed, but also the discouraged, those that haven't looked for work in the past month, and those working part-time, but would rather work full-time. The rate currently sits at 10.7%. Pre-pandemic, when we were near full employment, the U6 hit 6.8%. Now let's look at industrial capacity. Using the Fed's definition, it represents the extent to which installed productive capacity in manufacturing, mining, and utilities being used in the production of goods and services. The 50-year average is 80%, which intuitively makes sense, you're never going to run all plants at anywhere near full capacity. It tends to bottom out around 70% in an ordinary downturn, though it reached 64% at the worst of the pandemic in April a year ago. At March 31st, industrial capacity was 74.4%, well above the pandemic low point, but still below the pre-pandemic cyclical high of 79.6% reached in 2018. Of course, one relevant observation to make would be that below average capacity utilization dampens pricing power and ultimately inflation. So what if we were to combine the two measures? We could call it the economic slack index. When we add the U6 underemployment rate to the industrial idle rate, so one minus the capacity utilization rate, at March 31st, we get 36.3 still meaningfully above the pre-pandemic reading of 30.1. As a snapshot, this simple exercise serves as a reminder that while this demand shock we are experiencing with the post-vaccine reopening 
will make headlines and inject a bit of inflationary fear into markets, it is likely to subside over the course of the year and into 2022 as supply chains are fixed, the effects of stimulus wear off, and the economy adjusts to, hopefully, a post-pandemic world. All right, on to our second thing. Real-time economic insight, courtesy of the big banks. Now, we've all gotten used to counterintuitive, positive outcomes on much of the economic news in the pandemic era. Personal income is up. Savings is up. Retail sales up. Home prices up. Stock markets up. All made possible by the magic of stimulus and the backstop of the Fed. And, of course, the acquiescence of rates and currency markets. All that uncertainty back in Q1 2020 quickly gave way to economic stability before turning to robust growth in the wake of vaccine announcements and the Georgia Senate sweep in January, the latter paving the way for larger-than-expected additional stimulus. One of the prime beneficiaries of all this, no accident, is the financial system. Recall that back in the spring of 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon forecast, quote, at a minimum, a bad recession, combined with some kind of financial stress similar to the global financial crisis of 2008, unquote. He clearly remembered the credit crunch and staggering loan losses that followed the financial system meltdown in the fourth quarter of 2008. Again, what a difference a year makes. Now, we like to pay close attention to what the banks are saying because they touch every part of the economy and consequently are exposed to virtually every asset class and credit. So let's sift through their Q1 earnings transcripts for useful commentary and guidance. The overarching theme running through bank earnings releases is very large loan loss reserve releases. Bear in mind that banks typically accumulate reserves out of earnings to provide for future loan losses. As you would expect, this provision for loan losses moves with the credit cycle. In the first half of 2020, the bank set aside massive provisions for loan losses expected to arise out of the worst downturn in at least 70 years. But something highly unusual happened in this downturn. Loan losses didn't spike as feared for reasons we all know. Extraordinary fiscal and monetary response propped up businesses and individuals, allowing the vast majority of each to keep current on their loans. That left banks in an over-reserved position where they would have to release those reserves. This is noteworthy because banks would rather not do this. They don't get credit for releases as earnings, and they would rather hold on to them to reduce the earnings drag of future reserving. But they do it when they can no longer justify the over-reserved position. That tells you risk throughout the economy is well in hand. And reserve releases probably aren't done. J.P. Morgan Chase noted a backdrop of, quote, strong consumer balance sheets with higher savings rates and investments, as well as healthy deleveraging. And that is driving releases, adding that if we continue to see labor markets recover, if we continue to see the vaccine rollout be successful, we would have future releases from here. It's all good for risk. Citigroup echoed the same sentiment, as did Bank of America, recognizing that loan losses remain below pre-pandemic levels as remaining uncertainties continue to diminish. 
Consequently, B of A has reinstated all of its credit standards back to where they were before the pandemic. Good for risk. Wells Fargo pointed out that the quality of its loan portfolio continued to outperform expectations, with losses at historical lows. Consumer spending is picking up, and they are seeing a recovery in hard-hit areas like travel and dining. It added that this is the healthiest they've seen the consumer emerge from a crisis in recent history, driven in large part by the U.S. government stimulus package. Again, good for risk. Wells also noted that businesses remain strong as well, with strong cash positions. The reopening of the economy has had a positive impact on retail and hotel as cash flow levels have begun to improve. That said, stress remains, and retail in particular was the driver of charge-offs for Wells in the first quarter. Though clearly there are negative demand trends in many office markets, it pointed out, the office portfolio continued to perform well, and Wells was not seeing any widespread stress in the portfolio as of now. Again, good for risk. In sum, Wells said, given the delinquency trends that they're seeing today, they do not expect credit deterioration in the U.S. portfolio in 2021, and so peak losses may not occur until late 2022, depending on whether or not the stimulus results in a permanent benefit. So, just a bit of cold water on the story, the idea that this stimulus-fueled euphoria is transitory. J.P. Morgan also checked its exuberance, pointing out that while a strong recovery seems in motion, we're also prepared for more adverse outcomes given remaining uncertainties around the impact of new virus strains and the health of the underlying labor markets. Word of caution also came from Truist, the combination of BB&T and SunTrust, which reminded investors that once we flush through these massive amounts of stimulus, we will undoubtedly see some excesses. It will likely lead to some corrections down the road that nobody is projecting now. Fair warning, but for now, the credit color coming from the large lenders is good for risk. All right, on to our third thing. So just about everything we hear out of the banks is positive on the consumer. The jobs market looks like it's firming up. And everyone, it seems, is excited to dust themselves off and put their newly vaccinated selves out there into the mix. So we were a bit taken aback by the University of Michigan's latest consumer sentiment index, which came in at 86.5, missing the estimate of 89 by a not insignificant margin. We think it served as a reminder that the record-setting risk markets and ever-increasing GDP forecasts can form a bit of an echo chamber and get ahead of what is happening out there in the real economy. For context, the index is rising, and it never fell through the floor as was the case in the GFC, but it remains well below where it was pre-pandemic at 101. When we dig into the report a bit, the expectations component was flat to March, while current conditions showed a healthy gain. The scholars over at the Maze in Blue noted that this bucks the trend observed over the past 50 years, where the opposite is the norm coming out of a downturn. Expectations should lead current conditions. Concerns expressed by those surveyed include vaccine safety and inflation expectations hitting a 10-year high. 
Scarring is also evident as the expectation for intermittent downturns exceeds that for continuous gains by a healthy 10-point margin. That seems to be playing into another cautionary view. The economic outlook over the next five years fell four points in April to 90, right where it was in June of 2020. Now, to be fair, the latest report was not all doom and gloom. Half of respondents expected declines in unemployment, in fact, the largest percentage ever, and favorable developments in the economy were mentioned by 63% in April, nearly twice the January level. What this report suggests to us is that not everyone is as confident that the return to normal will be as uniformly positive as market prognosticators suggest. It may seem like that over the next couple of quarters as all of this stimulus washes over the land. But there is enough uncertainty out there in the labor market, the cost of living, and the pandemic itself to curb somewhat your enthusiasm. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, economic slack. Our index of of the U6 underemployment rate and excess industrial capacity tells us that there is plenty of slack in the economy, giving comfort that inflation fears are overblown. Two, big bank earnings. Our economic canaries in the coal mine. Q1 earnings actions and commentaries suggest nearly all is well in commercial and consumer loan risk. And three, consumer confidence. The latest report out of the University of Michigan reminds us that the pandemic and rising cost of living is weighing on the U.S. consumer. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.